Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Utah is home to two imperiled species of sage-grouse, the greater sage-grouse and gunnison sage-grouse. Healthy sagebrush habitat is crucial to the survival of both species. They depend on it for food, nesting, and cover. Their populations have been declining, and that has prompted federal officials to determine by the end of 2015 whether the bird warrants federal protection. State officials estimate there are between 16,000 and 34,000 birds in Utah, about 8% of the total population in the West. Such a listing would significantly impact energy development, grazing, recreation, and other activities on federal lands throughout the West. Today on the program, Terry Mesmer, Utah State University professor and Extension Wildlife Specialist, discusses the current issues surrounding the controversial bird. First, he describes their dependency on Utah's dry, snowy winter weather. Sage-grouse in Utah, uh, and actually range-wide, are, are really dependent on, on variation in, in, in weather patterns. Uh, typically, we've got, in our research in Utah, we've got higher nest success and higher productivity in those years where we've got wetter years. And, and when I mean wetter years, basically when we've got good snowpack, and then the uh, the snowpack dries gradually, and it uh, provides the green groceries that are important for uh, the hens and the chicks uh, once they uh, once the chicks are hatched off. And so, so they're they're really tied to that. You know, good good production years, particularly years where we've got wet winters, and 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 I mean a wet winter where we've got good snow cover, we've we've got we've got fairly good production. You know, in in the in the years where we've got dry winters, uh, you know, the birds tend to nest earlier. And, and our production uh, is, is not as good. And, and when I'm talking about a dry winter, what I'm referring to are, are those periods where the moisture comes primarily as rainfall. And, uh, uh, and then at the same time, as these chicks start hatching off, you know, they're very, very susceptible to, to changes in, in weather during that time period. If, if we get periods of prolonged, cold, damp, wet weather, uh, which... Uh, uh, rainfall or or snowfall, uh, we can uh, we can have high chick mortality, and so so sage grouse cycles are are really tied to that. But the the the, the important thing about understanding about sage grouse that they are relatively long lived, and so so they have the ability in, in in tough times maybe not to nest, and in in times when things are good to to nest, and so uh, you know our our survival rates of our adults are are, are fairly high, and so you know a hen during her life cycle could actually uh, contribute reproductively, you know, for four or five years. And so there's the ability to, to wait out bad years and, and capture good years and, and, and still contribute to uh, overall production. And so, uh, uh, but, but those are things that are, again, really tied to weather events. Good precipitation, good conditions are, are conducive to sage-grouse production, just as they are for uh, a lot of wildlife and, and agricultural crops. And what is their lifespan? A lot of our birds, the lifespan, you know, we've got birds that have lived as long as, as five, six years, radio-colored birds. And so, you know, in, in most cases, we're talking birds with lifespan four or more years. Uh, uh, but again, there are some birds that uh, have been productive uh, with radio collars that we've monitored that have been productive for, for you know, four or five years, which... Uh, Again, those are the birds, uh, you know, survival of the adult hen and, and ultimately survival of her, her chick, her broods. That's really what drives population. And so uh, uh, management efforts focus on creating the habitats and, and protecting the habitats that, that give these birds that, uh, that advantage uh, over time. And again, when we, when we look at sage-grouse habitats, we also need to consider more than just you know the lex. Folks look at lex and they talk about lex, and and obviously lex are important. But the the, the breeding habitat, uh, the roosting habitat, and the wintering habitat associated with those lex are also critical. And so, uh, you know, birds in some cases will move only a few miles from a lex. In other cases, they will move you know 20, 30 miles to to uh, uh, to raise broods and, and and to nest. And so there's there's a lot of variability within local populations. And again, understanding that is really the key to conservation. I see. And, and what is it, the the typical size of a, a, a would you call it a, a brood or 
Well, most, like. most of the most sage grouse will lay anywhere from you know six to eight eggs. Actually, we've got some variation populations where certain populations in in better quality habitat actually lay more eggs. You know, and so but typically that's six to eight egg range. And so of those, uh, uh, when we start seeing broods come off, uh, uh, you know, uh, hopefully all those eggs hatch, but invariably they do not. And so. Most broods will range in the neighborhood of, you know, three to four to five. Uh, um, in some areas of Utah, because of how the birds move up elevationally in, in time as the season progresses, we've had situations where we've had hens actually have uh, as many as 12, 15 chicks. And, and again, those were chicks that were probably brood hopping. And so as we look at those broods, and we've had radio mark chicks, and we see some variation in in size and age, and uh, uh, on one of our study areas, up to forty percent of our our chicks were brood hopped. In other words, they were were not with the original mother or the original hen that was their mother or their parent hen, and they you know got adopted by others. But again, we think that's also because of that unique area where they were doing an elevational migration, and also it's reflective probably of some fairly high densities of of sage grouse in that area. And how are their populations now? What size are they, and have they increased? I read that they have increased recently. Well, in 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 Utah's population, our Utah our Utah lek counts, and again, we use lek counts as kind of a measure of what our production is, and 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 it's really tough to to say exactly how many birds you might have based on a lek count, but the lek count trends. In, in most of the populations in Utah were up this last year, which is good. Uh, you know, hopefully with this year, uh, with kind of the production we're getting with the, with the more recent rains and snowfall, we're, uh, we're going to be in for a, you know, a, a productive year. There are some areas, however, because of some of the droughts and because of uh, impacts that populations that had with winter survival uh, for several years, uh, those numbers were were not as good, you know. With the, with the drought, we didn't get as high a nest initiation. But most areas of the state, we saw an increase in the uh, numbers of males counted on leks. And again, that's uh, indicative from the standpoint of uh, a, a population that's actually stable and, and and possibly increasing. And what do you attribute that to? These healthier populations. Well, right. Well, there's been a lot of work, a lot of work in habitat in habitat management. We've created a lot of habitat. Uh, the state of Utah, through the Watershed Restoration Initiative, has been focusing and has identified sage-grouse uh, habitat uh, enhancement as one of the priority uh, uh, efforts. And so we've done a lot of that work. Then that work, in coupled with uh, some better moisture conditions in some of the areas, that's, uh, I think, contribute to some of the overall uh, uh, increases that we've had in uh, in our populations. The sage grouse has been caught up in so many political controversies or issues, it seems, the past several years, and whether or not to list it or to not list it. And what are your thoughts on, on that and, and where it's at now and what you think is best for the bird? The questions concerning the, the status of sage grouse populations and, and and both the regulatory and political aspects concerning that have been a, have been a real roller coaster. Uh, you know, uh, back in 2005, the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, based on information, came back and they ruled uh, that the uh, listing of the species was unwarranted, and that was revisited again. And then in 2010, they came back with the determination that because of habitat loss, fragmentation, and and then the lack of those mechanisms to to protect habitat, they've uh, identified it as a candidate species. Uh, subsequent to that decision, there was a uh, an agreement based on litigation uh, regarding uh, a lot of candidate species. Essentially, there are there are several hundred species that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has got kind of in this parking lot called candidate species, where uh, they were they warranted uh, listing, but they were precluded by by higher uh, conservation needs or higher higher concerns about other species, and so this court mandated settlement uh, requires the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the fall of 2015 to make decisions about not only greater sage grouse but also a number of different species 
um, that are a candidate. One of the things going on is, you know, when when you look at this species, you know, the state of Utah and other states have been been involved in a lot of these conservation efforts and, and kind of moving those efforts forward uh, well before any petitions were filed to list greater sage-grouse. And most of those petitions were filed in, in 2000. But in Utah and in other states, you know, there were sage-grouse local working groups where citizens and 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 business and ranchers and industry and conservationists had kind of banded together to form local working groups. And these groups uh, worked together to identify what the threats were and, and what the needs were and and, and implemented voluntary measures to to address those and and so Utah's been long at this. We started in 1996 with this effort and and so we're actually going into almost two decades of sage grouse conservation. And again, a lot of this started before the uh, the petitions were filed. Uh, recently, uh, and more recently, in in the last five years, a lot of the states have gone back and they've relooked at the sage grouse management plans that they've got and they've They've readjusted those. Uh, Utah, for example, in, in uh, a few years ago went back and revisited the state plan that was written in 2000, amended in 2009, and developed a, a Utah conservation strategy, which was endorsed and is endorsed by the governor, uh, Governor Gary Herbert. And so this basically, and again, other states are, have done the same thing, this provided increased emphasis, increased incentives, increased uh, call for cooperation to, to implement programs designed to, to benefit uh, sage-grouse. And so collectively, this range-wide effort, I think, is really, really a positive step, and I think it's going a long way to address uh, the concerns uh, that were listed or identified by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the 2010 decision. And so at this point, I, I believe that there are enough areas of sagebrush and there's there's adequate habitat out there to manage and conserve the species and at, at, at this point given these efforts and given the interests of the states and other partners to move forward uh, uh, if it was my decision to make right now I would I would say let's let's stay the course and let's let the state management plans uh, get a chance to to uh, work and and again because we have a long-lived species it's going to take some time for some of these benefits to really be realized and so my sense if i had the authority to do this i would um, delay uh, if it if it means the delay means basically saying that it's not a candidate uh, but i would i would delay that decision and allow these plans to move forward and reevaluate the whole situation either on a yearly basis or or maybe 3 to 5 years from uh, from now okay and what are some of the state strategies for protecting the bird and without it being listed? Well, the, the, the state strategies, you know, one of the things that's happening is the BLM is, uh, is going under uh, a situation where uh, what they're doing is, uh, is revisiting some of their resource management plans. The U.S. Forest Service is revisiting their land use plans. And, uh, and so they're really looking at the entire situation from the standpoint of, of how they can better work with the states and with state management and put in some measures that address some of the regulatory concerns identified by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And so um, uh, basically what's happening is uh, that collaborative effort, uh, they're focusing on identifying high-priority areas, areas where we've got critical populations and and uh, areas where we've got the greatest potential to manage and improve habitats and identifying those and then working cooperatively to implement strategies uh, both on private and public land where uh, where we can benefit the species you know one of the interesting things uh, utah might be somewhat different than some of the other western states even though we've got 70 percent of the state is is managed under the federal authority uh, our data suggests that about 55% of all the leks are are on private land, and so we have this this important nexus of where we've got private and public land, and our birds depend in a lot of areas for nesting and brood rearing areas on private land, and and then they also use public land as part of that that seasonal habitat base, and so. The, it's important to understand the landscape and how that landscape is used by the populations, and so that if we implement a management action in a certain area which is going to affect the management of another area, 
by maybe changing, you know, the, the, the livestock activity or things along that line, you know, those could have consequences for the species that are unintended. And so the strategies basically are focusing on identifying priority areas, protecting the best of the best, doing those things where we can manage the landscape based on the landscape of the birds and the landscape movements rather than, than maybe a, a single area or a single land ownership. Okay, and what would you say is the biggest threat to the bird? Well, I mean, obviously, it's it's still habitat loss, habitat loss, and, and, and probably habitat loss more than fragmentation. When we look at all of our local working group areas, the threats are different in certain areas. For example, some of the lower elevation areas, our greatest threat continues to be the uh, wildfires, and then also invasive species, you know, where we've got invasive species moving into the area, particularly cheatgrass, they create a situation where where if certain areas burn, some of those areas that are destroyed, it, it could take decades to rehabilitate those sites. And so, uh, you know, wildfires are a big issue. Uh, again, habitat loss are an issue. Just things out there that kind of affect that connectivity and that quality of the habitat. Uh, as we get into situations where we see habitat loss and we see maybe fragmentation where habitat larger pieces are cut up into smaller pieces, also we see the increased risk of possibly predation. And and again, um, most sage-grouse populations, uh, you know, predation is there. Most of the birds out there, the mortalities are caused because somebody eats that bird or there's an accident or something along the line. And so predation uh, really hasn't been a factor over time, but again, having the sense of, uh, of, uh, of, of understanding how that habitat actually, actually constitutes a, an indirect form of predation management and maintaining those are going to be really, really important. And would you say that the sage-grass are a very resilient, hardy species? I mean, they survive in these some harsh climates and severely cold winters, if that's correct, and have lots of predators, I assume. Right. Sage-grouse are, are, are uniquely adapted to the sagebrush systems they, they live in. I mean, they, they require sagebrush. There's no doubt about it. I mean, that's an important component not only for cover but also for for uh, for forage. Uh, you know, in winter, sage-grouse populations, sage-grouse individuals can actually gain weight on actually eating sagebrush. And so sustaining a good sagebrush community where you've got some heterogeneity, in other words, you've got areas that afford good winter cover that are tall, dense stands of sagebrush or, or, or slopes that are windswept and, and free of snow uh, and contain, uh, you know, low sagebrush or black sagebrush in combination with wet meadow areas or mesic areas that uh, are used for nesting and also raising those those broods are, are really, really critical to maintain that. But but paramount in this is they we've got to maintain a sagebrush, a strong sagebrush component uh, as part of that habitat base for these birds to survive. And how is your radio collar project going with children? We we have had projects in the past where actually we have taken children out and they've uh, schools and they've actually uh, watched birds monitor uh, leks. They've counted leks and then in in uh, in some cases actually uh, donated some money to, to purchase radio collars that we could actually use for ongoing research. Uh, Right now in the state of Utah, there are there are uh, three, uh, four projects ongoing, including work being done by Utah State and BYU, where we're tracking sage-grouse to learn more about their movements and specifically how they respond to management actions. And, and that's really the thing what we need to, to get a handle on, is that uh, when we go out and we do something on the landscape, how are the birds responding? Not only are they using the habitat, uh, the created habitat, but also is that having an effect on their vital rates? In other words, are we seeing increased survival? Are we seeing increased nest success? And ultimately seeing increases in the population. And so uh, so getting the community involved, getting folks out to see things, to, uh, the, you know, to see the birds on the landscape, to understand how they use the landscape um, is, is, is paramount to that decision. Uh, Utah's effort regarding radio collar and, and, and a lot of the work we've done with, uh, with sage-grouse and, and learning more about their ecology and, and mapping their habitats really started way back in 1996 when the uh, uh, group of ranchers out of, uh, out of uh, Wayne County, they actually, we talked about this issue in a, one of their grazing association meetings 
they gave us a $3,000 check to buy the very first radio callers that we've used at Utah State to look at sage-grouse populations in the state of Utah. And so the the, the first uh, folks to, to step up and say, hey, we got to do something about this, were actually uh, some of the ranchers in, in one of our, our, our rural counties that uh, were concerned about what was going on and felt we needed more information so we could make better decisions. And so getting stakeholders involved like that up front, uh, I think, has really been the uh, the success of Utah's effort and, and other efforts in other states across the West. Great. And do you know the timeline of decisions and what's the next decision we can expect? There are a couple decisions that are, are, are probably going to be pretty paramount in this process. The, the The first part is the U.S. Forest Service and the BLM will, they've, they've finished the, the comment period regarding the land use and the uh, resource management plan revisions. And so they're 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 analyzing that in comment. They're looking at it, and so there's going to be a decision document somewhere this late summer, midsummer. And again, I don't know exact time frame, and and we'll learn more about that at the Utah summit when we've got uh, uh, Forest Service and BLM uh, representatives. Uh, we'll be we'll be talking to participants, but basically there's a time frame where they'll basically make a decision regarding what alternative or what things they're going to do in terms of implementing the uh, the plans, uh, implementing their changes, and then they will basically say, um, you know, this is what we're going to do, these are alternatives, and they'll announce that to the public. And so that'll be a major decision point to address, you know, some of the fish and wildlife concerns on federal land. And the other decision point will be, uh, like I said, September 2015, where the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will actually make a, a determination regarding greater sage-grouse, but also, uh, you know, other species which are, are part of that candidate list. You know, sage-grouse conservation is really about community conservation. You know, these birds uh, live and occupy areas where we've got long histories of uh, community involvement and activities, and so if the conservation of this bird is going to occur, it's going to have to have the involvement of the entire community, and that includes those folks that, that live and work on the landscape, uh, making sure that working landscapes are sustained and productive, but, but also those individuals that are concerned about uh, the species that, that don't live on those working landscapes, but benefit from the products that are produced off those landscapes. Okay, and then just in closing, what what is the most interesting thing to you about the sage grouse what uh, intrigues you about them maybe interesting behavior or biology well the the thing about sage grouse is is so unique as an understanding of really kind of their their life cycle and the things that they have to go through in order to sustain an individual or to sustain a population and so one of the things we find is we take people out and we uh, we take them out and we show them a lek and we talk about the lekking activity and how this is something that's been going for 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 hundreds thousands of years and and the role of that on the landscape what people do is they develop a uh, an awareness for the species and and they also develop an appreciation and awareness and appreciation are the first steps in conservation well terry thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and for all of this really valuable information. And I understand the summit is next week with Governor Herbert, and you're speaking as well. We've pulled together the folks that have been involved in sage-grouse conservation issues for a long time, and the summit is going to be held February 18th and 19th, and it's going to be at the uh, DNR Auditorium in Salt Lake City. Governor Herbert will be will be addressing the group about the effort, but then also We'll bring in people that have been working on these issues, uh, uh, local landowners, uh, stakeholders, elected officials. And so right as of today, we've got over 200 and some folks that have uh, registered for the conference. And so we're looking forward to a, a good information transfer and a good dialogue. And, and hopefully uh, through this process, we can address some of the uncertainty that folks have about uh, what's going on with sage grouse, and, and 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 also increase their awareness about what they can do in this effort. We do also have it available. Will it be? It'll be web streamed. Oh, great! And so folks can actually look at it. It'll be going to all the western states. We, we've got a, a pretty good network. And again, what what this is really, uh, it's a precursor to a a national conference on local working groups or a national forum on local working groups that we're going to have in November. And so this is kind of a, if you will, maybe a template 
on uh, on what we might see in, in kind of a national forum that engages uh, stakeholders from all the 11 Western states. For those of you unable to attend the summit, you can join the meeting online anytime from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. at connect.usu.edu forward slash sgday1 forward slash. That's connect.usu.edu forward slash sgday1 forward slash. Sherry Quinn for Access Utah. Thanks for listening. Staying fit can't be fun. Join us on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health for great tips on healthy living like this recipe for cranberry pecan sweet potatoes. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRI, Public Radio International. Coming up today at 10 o'clock right after Access Utah. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and a Green Valley Spa and Resort in St. George, offering a poetry salon the fourth Thursday of every month. Featuring booked poets, singers, and songwriters, details at greenvalleyspa.com. And by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, offering breakfast Monday through Saturday, beginning at 7 a.m., featuring quiche, granola with layers of yogurt and fruit, or ciabatta fried egg bun with bacon, avocado, and provolone. Welcome to Science Questions, I'm Sherry Quinn. In New Delhi at the Sulab International Museum of Toilets, we meet founder Dr. Bindeshwar Patak. Born in 1943 in the village called Rampur, Dr. Patak started a sanitation crusade in 1970. He developed India's sustainable, low-cost public toilet system that produces fertilizer and energy out of human excreta. He has won numerous national and international awards for his toilet technology. He received the Renewable Energy Award at the United Nations headquarters in New York City. Dr. Patak says India is still facing major problems related to sanitation practices. More than 100 million Indian homes do not have a toilet, and several million households that do are using unsanitary buckets for toilets, which causes diseases. As a result, over half of India's population still openly defecates even along roads and railway tracks. He says women suffer the most. Women in many rural areas are only supposed to relieve themselves when it is dark, and Dr. Patak says that makes them vulnerable to what he calls antisocial purposes or criminal attacks. Actually, in India, we have two major problems. The one system in India is people go outside for defecation, they have no toilets in their homes. That you should go at a distance, dig a small pit, put some grass and leaves in the pit, then defecate, and after defecation, again fill with grass and leaves and cover with earth. But what people did in India, they kept going outside for defecation. But they left digging a small pit and putting grass and leaves and then defecating and again filling with earth. So uh, this is a problem of environmental pollution and also health hazards. About 700,000 children die every year because of diarrhea and dehydration. Women 
are the worst sufferers because they have to go before sunrise or after sunset in uh, say if they feel in between then they have to control sometimes they face criminal assault also while going for defecation in the in the evening people chase them for some uh, anti social purposes uh, in earlier days women were the uh, early risers they used to wake up at 4 o'clock to go for defecation now the girls wake up at 6 o'clock 7 o'clock and at that time they cannot go outside for defecation so we have one problem the india is facing the other problem was that there was no public toilets at public places like railway stations or bus stops uh, religious places or uh, places of tourist interest these places had no basic amenities and so people used to feel very difficulties uh, how to go uh, about especially the foreigners when they used to come to india they used to complain about this that there are no basic amenities and we have to go this this is the second and the third problem was the problem of scavenging means manually cleaning up women's kita by the people of others and this started more than 2000 years old india is a society dominated by a caste system the scavengers also known as the untouchables are the lowest caste system and are responsible for cleaning up by hand the buckets of human excrement or excreta in stark contrast dr patak is from the highest caste the brahmins when he was 12 years old he touched a scavenger for this taboo act his grandmother forced him to eat a cow's tongue sand and drink polluted river water before she would let him back into the family home after graduating from college in sociology in 1968 dr patak joined a scavengers liberation group started by bihar gandhi and he was assigned to live with scavengers to study their way of life for 3 months since this experience He has dedicated his life to improving sanitation technology and freeing scavengers from cleaning up human excreta, a job he says demeans them and fosters hate. They were kept at the lowest level of the social structure of Indian society. In India, we have hierarchy of castes. Like Brahmin is the highest, and the scavengers are the lowest among the low. Nobody would allow them. to have dinner with them they used to go uh, for cleaning the toilets early in the morning before sunrise so that nobody should touch them they had to live at the exterior part of the village or the city they used to play only with the pigs because nobody would play with their children all types of left food they used to get from the people and they used to eat uh the girls after marriage they also have to clean the toilets and if this somebody refuses then the mother in law and the, and the, uh, even the husband forces them uh, to uh, clean human excreta manually so this is very appalling situation and uh, if you go hearing their incident in, the, in their lives tears may roll down in your eyes what what touched your heart the uh, the appalling condition mm-hmm. the way the society was misbehaving with them mm-hmm. and we can say it is beyond uh, imagination that the persons who are doing good society had not the clean toilets there would have been diseases and people would have died huh? but those people are hated by society discriminated against they are called untouchables and where they are kept lowest among the low um and did you face any criticism from your caste and the living in in, in the very beginning yes 
my father he said i thought you will do something else and my father in law was very angry and uh, he did not want to talk to me uh, and then then the villagers also used to pass on remarks skepticals you can say and taunting you can say then the students who were with me as a colleagues they used to say the genius had been spoiled uh, so these were the situations earlier but not now yeah. now they say me the same colleagues they say genius cannot be spoiled <laughs> see Dr. Patak used his unspoiled genius to develop a two-pit toilet system popularly referred to as the Sulab toilet. He now has installed 1.4 million household toilets and maintains thousands of public pay-per-use toilets utilized by millions of people around the country. The technology is simple and inexpensive compared to sewage systems in developed countries that require an intricate system of water and treatment plants. The two-pit technology is comprised of two large underground circular pits that capture human waste from toilets. When one of them fills up, it is sealed off for two years while the other one gets used. The lack of oxygen in the sealed pit kills off all the bacteria and harmful pathogens. What remains is basically dirt that can be turned into fertilizer. The technology has so far liberated around a million scavengers. I have given the model. Okay. I have shown the way. But this could be said as beginning of the beginning, a candle in the darkness. India got independence in 1947. And this will be the second independence from the filth and dirt, from the diseases. So we'll have to fight like this. It's, if, if we go slowly, the way we are going, it will take time to achieve the target. So they will have to fight, just like the freedom movement, and fight against the diseases, dirt, discrimination, untouchability, and so on and so forth. Dr. Patak started the Sulab sanitation and social reform movement to help improve the health, dignity, and lives of millions of people. The social service organization is based in New Delhi, next to the Sulab Toilet Museum. It is a city block-sized complex with schools for scavengers and other low-income citizens who want to learn skills for careers such as seamstresses, secretaries, hairstylists, and business owners. Mrs. Verma is one of the school and museum directors. How is it funded? Uh, we have our public toilets. Mm -hmm. So to use that, you have to pay one rupee. So we have more than 7,000 public toilets all over India. That's great. Uh -uh. <laughs> so some of the toilets, we hardly get five rupees. Again, this is embroidery. That was tailoring. This is embroidery. So you can Hello. My name is Kavita, and I am the student of short and English trade. And, and which class is this? Shorthand. Short and shorthand. Stenography, complete course of uh, uh, secretary, secretarial plan, complete course. How will it help you, in, with your future? What is your future when you learn this? You become a stock. Good stenographer. Stenographer, become a personal secretary also. And initially, for scavengers, everything was free, in vocational also. Mm -hmm. But now what we have done in one-year courses where we have limited seats, just 18 seats are there, we have asked them to pay something, something very minimal. Because what they do is, if you give something free, they take it for granted. Yeah. And they come here, block the seats, because we can't take more than 18 students. So they come here, block the seats, and then get dropouts. So now that's the reason we have asked them to pay. Every school morning, students start the day reciting their own poetry and reading newspaper clips. Mrs. Verma says they can earn money this way to help pay for their schooling, while also building self-confidence. She says she's impressed by how many of them are excellent poets. Oh, everyone, everyone, start the day with prayer. We have our love's prayer. So we recite our prayers, 
uh, we uh, pray basically uh, uh, together because they say in the family that prays together stays together. So that's the reason <laughs> we start our day with the prayer. And there we call the students to recite a poem, to say newspaper, uh, read newspaper headlines. Indirectly, that gives them confidence. And stage fear is also gone. Plus, the money which they pay here as a fee can be earned through that. That's and funny. some of them, they are, don't know that they are poets. But when they are, we ask them to write a poem, and you'll be surprised some of them have emerged. They are surprised to them that they themselves didn't knew that they were poets. Uh, they start writing something. Research on toilet technology is conducted at the Sulab complex. Scientist Dr. B. Getha is mixing a batch of human excreta removed from a pit to turn it into fertilizer. He says it has no odor or pathogens. He jokingly says they should call it humanor. Where is that? <laughs> it is human excreta from pit that after two years that we take out. It has no odor at all, no pathogen. Yeah. It's completely pathogen free, but it has a good percentage of nitrogen, potassium, and phosphate. What do you call it? Is there a name for it? Uh, human excreta manure. Sim simple word uh, that I, last time I gave it. It should be called human manure. Human <laughs> <laughs> <Hugh> manure. <laughs> human excreta manure. It will be a simple word, human manure. People are, are people afraid of that though? When they hear that, they don't want to use it for their garden? No, no, there's a lot of psychological changes. Hmm. Sometimes in rural areas, what happens, if you go for a toilet, you are not allowed to enter into kitchen unless you have bath. Okay. It is not only physical, it is mental and religious. Because our taboo is to such great extent, that's why okay. it will take time. Okay. Particularly, we have difficulty in the use of biogas. The two pit toilets are also designed to trap biogas that can be burned as cooking fuel and electricity. Recycling human excreta for biogas is considered a viable way to get rid of health hazards and produce renewable energy, according to the Intergovernmental Renewable Energy Organization. Dr. Bigetha says the biggest challenge is getting over the mental, cultural, and religious taboos. It's just gas to him, but that's not usually the case with everyone else, he says, especially in rural areas. It is not a excreta, it is a gas. But in rural areas, people hesitate to make, take meal or take, prepare meal on biogas because they have psychological, it is for a human excreta. So mostly right now, is it poor families that are using yeah, the yeah, biogas? Yeah, yeah. Now many people are approaching for the last two months that I want to use biogas. Because is it cheaper or is it? It is cheaper and uh, now the economic aspect of biogas has overcome their psychological taboo. They are also using sustainable approaches to treating wastewater that have direct economic benefits. Dr. Bigetha says a common plant called duckweed grows well in wastewater treatment ponds and it helps clean the water. Certain kinds of fish feed on duckweed, so they grow fish for food in duckweed-treated wastewater ponds. Forests cover one-third of Utah, and they are one of the most valuable resources on the planet because they are renewable and they provide oxygen for our Earth. But we rarely see them in our headlines. Today, SQ brings you part one of the series, More Than a Tree, Sarah Waller from member station KUOW. I'm here at the Meadows Cemetery in Ferndale, Washington. It looks like a meadow full of tall grass and purple clover. There are no headstones, at least 
not visible ones. You'd never guess people are buried here, but they are. And that means under the ground, a form of reincarnation is taking place. There is so much meaning in putting new life on the ground above a loved one, knowing that in a very real and literal way, that person is going to nurture that tree and their molecules are going to become part of it. Brian Flowers oversees burials at the meadows. It's not a conventional cemetery. When you bury your loved one here, you're handed a shovel and a tree seedling. No embalming fluids or synthetic coffins are allowed. The idea is to let the body return as naturally as possible to the earth. Here's my mother's gravesite. There was nothing that she wanted more when she died than to be returned to the soil. Trisha Otto buried her mother here two summers ago. It was a place they chose together while her mother Lori was still alive. Her mom was a well-known environmental activist and pioneer in the natural landscape movement, which favored the use of wild grasses and native plantings over fertilized manicured lawns. So the meadows felt like home. Actually, there was a large anthill right on her site, and she was thrilled about that. Maybe her only worry was that it might have to be destroyed when, when it was her time. Trisha and her mom liked coming here together. Her mom would sit in a folding chair perched right at the edge of her future grave, while Trisha pulled weeds and tended the soil. They talked about life, and they planted a tree. Mother chose an oak tree, and so we planted that about a year before she died. When Trisha's mom passed away, her body was wrapped in a white cloth and lowered into the grave. Her friends and family took up shovels. By hand, they covered her with soil. That's when a transformation started taking place. There was always a reshuffling. There was always a recycling. There was always sort of a reincarnation of, of everything. Nalini Nadkarni is a scientist who knows a lot about something called nutrient cycling. It's the way nutrients move from one body to the next. For example, it's the way that a tiny piece of Trisha's mom might end up in a tree leaf. To follow the process, we can look at one particular part of her body. Like, say, a piece of hair. And in that hair, there's a particle of nitrogen, for example. At first, the hair gets chewed up by insects in the soil. It's still hair, just smaller. But then, it gets consumed by bacteria and fungi. They digest it, and that nitrogen gets clipped off and reshuffled into a different molecule. And that becomes available for, say, a tree root to absorb and start moving that through the tree to be turned into a leaf or a piece of bark or a piece of wood. So the very particle of nitrogen that had been in Trisha's mother's hair might show up in a leaf on the oak tree that is growing on her mother's grave, or rather, the tree that was growing on her mother's grave. When I came out to look at it um, a month or so ago, by golly, it had been clipped off at the base by a rabbit. <laughs> Mother loved rabbits, so we're replanting it this fall. That, I think, is the key point, that when someone is buried, the nitrogen and the other molecules can actually move through not only a single ecosystem, but it can move through time unchanged. This process has been going on for centuries, for millennia. It's the way that the stuff of our being, the very stuff we're made of, gets circulated all over the world, place to place, organism to organism. And that means that the very same nitrogen that went from Trisha's mom to a tree to a rabbit could have been a nitrogen molecule that was originally in the bagel that Napoleon ate on his march to Russia. And it doesn't stop there. It goes back in time because that nitrogen might have been actually the back hair of a woolly mammoth thousands of years ago. Because of this idea of recycling, that, that matter is neither created nor destroyed, but rather recycled over and over again and reborn into some other living entity. And that, to me, is kind of a miracle. Trisha wants to be buried next to her mother. She stands at her gravesite and pushes back the tall grasses and points to a river stone bearing her name. Next to it, Trisha has already planted a tiny oak tree, just like the one by her mother's grave, before the rabbit ate it. This tree is part of the earth and that's, I'm going to be part of the earth. I am part of the earth right now. My molecules are just going to be recycled into all of this around me. It feels wonderful. I'm Sarah Waller.
Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. As American sports fans gear up for the World Series, learn how Salt Lakers used to get their baseball fix on the streets of downtown. First this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. Throughout its storied history, the game of baseball has been broadcast via the internet, on television, and over the radio. During the early days of radio, the play-by-play of baseball games were relayed to radio stations and newspapers by telegraph. Starting in 1915, Salt Lake Tribune sports editor John Dirks received those telegraphed messages and translated them instantly to baseball fans gathered on the streets outside the newspaper's building by way of old Ironsides. Old Ironsides was a large electric scoreboard bearing a painted baseball diamond and colored lights. Controlled by Dirks and others at the Tribune, the board resembled a pinball machine when bulbs lit up to trace the play of away games. Red lights signified runners, and white lights showed the placement of hits. The number of balls, strikes, and outs were tracked, and the path of a pitch was followed from the pitcher spot to home plate and then to wherever the ball was hit. Old Ironsides was mounted on the side of the Tribune building at 145 South Main Street, where downtown fans could easily follow the games. The Tribune used Old Ironsides to broadcast the away games of the Salt Lake Bees until 1925, when the team left town. After that, the trip brought out Old Ironsides each October for the World Series. People packed Main Street to follow the games. In 1928, Old Ironsides began running in conjunction with live broadcasts from NBC Radio, a combination that was very modern for the time. Watching the World Series on Old Ironsides became a classic community tradition. Old Ironsides did not vanish from the public as much as it faded in importance. With advances in radio and later television, the old scoreboard became both obsolete and more novel through the 1940s and 50s. Its story is a reminder of the importance of America's pastime, the World Series, and the excitement of October. Research and writing for this episode of the Beehive Archive were done by Nicholas Demas. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1, 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1, 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1, 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1, 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1, 91.5 Logan.